So John chapter 1, 1 through 5. Uh, my name is Pastor Chris, if you do not know me. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Remedy, and it's good to have you guys this morning on the Lord's Day. If you would, stand with me um, at Remedy. We read God's Word standing just as a, a way of symbolizing with our bodies and giving honor to the Lord that this is His Word, and this is how He builds His people. John 1 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, we are so thankful that you build us over, over, and over again through your word. That it's not our works, it's not our own doings, but rather it's your word. And it never returns void when, when you speak it to us. So Lord, we ask that you would accompany your word today with power, that you would build your house, your church that you would edify us, that you'd make us more like Jesus today. And Lord, as we uh, just glimpse into such holy, divine mysteries that are revealed to us in John 1, that you would just let our hearts be glad over this word, this, this person, this Jesus, and let our minds just think high thoughts of you. Let us worship you today on the Lord's Day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some attribute uh, this saying to an old saint named Augustine. Um, some attribute it later on to Charles Spurgeon. And I've heard some attribute it before and after and all during. Um, I learned it from a guy, uh, guy who, the man who taught me the book of John. His name was Dr. McWilliams. But he says this, The book of John is shallow enough for a child to swim and deep enough for an elephant to drown. Shallow enough for a child to swim and deep enough for an elephant to drown. So I'll give a, a quick example of what we mean by this. Jesus states this in John. He says, I am the bread of life. And that statement is simple enough to receive that a child can understand it. Because a child understands and every single person on planet earth understands regardless of their age, their gender, their ethnicity, it doesn't matter. You go anywhere, any culture on planet Earth understands the concept that without food, I will die. And Jesus now says, I am your food. I am the bread of life. So a child can swim in that statement. But an elephant can also drown because if you survey the Old Testament, you find this theme of bread and God's provision for God's people. Uh, one example would be obviously when they crossed the Red Sea, they went in slaves, they come out the other end of the Red Sea, the people of God free from Pharaoh and his armies, and then every day as they're wandering in the wilderness, except for on the Sabbath, God provides bread from the sky, and Jesus makes this claim that he is that bread. He is the bread from heaven. Uh, the great pleasure of starting to wade these waters in the book of John and see what God reveals about himself, our kind of first section it's going to be John chapter 1 through John chapter 4, and we're calling it Glory Revealed. 
And our text today is John 1, 1 through 5. But before we um, dive in, since this is the first thing in John, I want to introduce the book. John tells us its purpose in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that kind of second to last clause, it reads this way in the Greek. This is how D.A. Carson, he points this out in the Greek. He says, that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And so Carson then goes on to say, what's the main purpose of John? Its main purpose is evangelistic. It's evangelistic. It wants people to know that the Messiah, the Savior sent by God, the Son of God, is none other than Jesus Christ, and that by believing in this Messiah's name, you have salvation, you have eternal life. And so you might be then thinking, well, I already believe Jesus is the Messiah, so are we about to take a 15-year-long sermon series through the book of John, and I already have, you know, what it's basically telling me to have? Um, The answer is no. It's still for you. Um, So John intends to grow your faith and to mature your faith, and you see tons and tons of examples of that throughout the book of John, of people starting somewhere in their faith and then ending somewhere else in their faith. So that's, that's one element. But then secondly, if you believe in Jesus, you're called to share the gospel with unbelievers. And you're going to get tons of dialogues from Jesus and stories about Jesus where he demonstrates how we can do this as believers, how we can share Christ with the world. So it is for us. So very recently, um, the elders uh, and their families kind of got together, and we had a nice long dinner. It was actually like it was a lunch, and uh, Joe cooked it, and it was amazing. Um, but we were kind of sharing some of our like dreams, right, for Remedy and just ministry in general. And Pastor David shared that one of his dreams was that the brothers and sisters at Remedy and us as a local church would grow not by receiving more people from other churches, but would grow because we've gone out and we've shared the gospel and someone who did not believe in Jesus believes in Jesus and comes to the church, right, and worships Jesus in our church. So not to grow numerically because we're getting other believers from other places, but to grow numerically because God is saving more unbelievers who've never heard his name. And so I thought that was timely that we should go through the book of John because that's John's dream as well. John's dream is that the church would grow through the proclamation of the gospel to the lost. So if believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promise concerning salvation is kind of the purpose, then the identity of Jesus is what we're really focusing in on. That's what John's going to show us. He's going to show us who Jesus really is and you know, we have tons of statements throughout the gospel, and in today's text, we're going to learn some pretty amazing truths about who Jesus is. And so, the main, if I would give you the main point, the main point is this, the identity of the word is going to be revealed to us, or another way of saying that. In qu- and so, our first point comes from verses 1 through 2, and it's this, uh, the word is eternal, personal, and divine. The word is eternal, personal, and divine. So John writes in verses 1 through 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning 
with God. So John takes us back immediately to Genesis chapter 1, right? You can't help but think, in the beginning, and then you go right back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, So he takes us back to Genesis 1 with the creation story in his mind, but it reveals deeper truths about what's actually going on in Genesis 1. Because in Genesis, that's been created, and then we see God's word, but it's just like God is speaking. But now all of a sudden, John is taking us back to that same storyline and showing us that this word is more than what we once thought about it. Verses 1 through 2 make a kind of chiasm, which is just a fancy way of saying it's like a mountaintop. Uh, Point A, point B, center mountaintop, point C. And then there's something that correlates to point B, and then something that correlates to point A. So let me show you this. Uh, This phrase, in the beginning, correlates with verse 2, he was in the beginning. The phrase, the word was with God, correlates with verse 2, with God. And then at the center, standing on its own, with no repetitiveness whatsoever, is the phrase, the word was God. So one of the first truths about Jesus that John tells us is that Jesus is God. And in these two verses, we're going to learn three things. So go ahead and put up the first sub-point. The word is eternal. This comes from the phrase, in the beginning was the word. So Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts off, in the beginning. And like a good Jew, if you were reading this like a good Jew, you immediately in your mind go, in the beginning, God. But then John subverts all expectations, like the last Jedi, unfortunately. Um, And he doesn't say God here. He says, was the word. And so there's this switch. What on earth is going on? Who is this word? It's supposed to be God here. And you see, believers and unbelievers alike have this conundrum about in the beginning. It's like one of the, the questions that is always gnawing upon the hearts of our curiosity for thousands upon thousands of years. Where is the or, what's the origin of life? What began things? Where did stuff come from? Where, where, where did creation come from? What is our origin? Ecclesiastes maybe says it this way in 3 verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so throughout history, civilization has always answered this in one of three ways, where stuff came from. Uh, The first way that it answers it is matter or creation came from something or someone, right? And this can take lots of variations. It could be gods, goddesses, polytheism, monotheism. It can be the God of the Bible. It could be the God of the Quran. All different kinds of answers, but basically these people say creation came from someone. Someone created it. Another way that it's been answered is matter or creation, it wouldn't be called creation, has always existed. It's eternal. This is what the ancient Greeks taught, that it's always been here. And so basically they worship the earth. God is, God is the earth. And then another way, which is a more recent answer to this question Matter has come from nothing. Um, The late, smart um, Stephen Hawking uh, in modern kind of metaphysics postulates that there's an energy that pops in and out of existence. And that energy popped into existence from non-existence and kind of kicked off this chain reaction that led to matter, right? And so if you're thinking of the magician, right, one says there is a magician and he does create a rabbit in a hat and pulls it out. The other one says, 
there's always been a rabbit, there's no magician, there's no hat. And then the third one says, the rabbit pulled itself out of the hat, right? Um, And so God here tells us in Genesis 1 and also in John 1 that matter comes from him. He is the one who created all things. And John 1 tells us that this God is more complicated and more beautiful and more glorious than we originally thought when we read Genesis 1. John 1 tells us that God was not alone, but rather he was accompanied by the word of God, who also is eternal, and he created all things, and they created all things. But this may seem obvious if the word was like apart from God. If if God's eternal, then of course his word's eternal. But John goes way more than that. The word is not just a part of God. And so this goes to our second point, or sub-point B, The word's a person. John continues, the word was with God. Um, Spurgeon always has a saying like this. He says, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. This word with, look at this word with. It's just a mere preposition, and yet you would be hard-pressed to find a more theologically loaded and important preposition in all the universe and in all the Bible. The word was with God. The word's not a part of God, but rather stands beside God, or rather, before the face of God. The with tells us that this word is a person apart from God. Together with our first point, then, we can put these things together. The word is an eternal person who is with God. Now, personification of God's word is a pretty common theme throughout the Bible. Um, So, I'll give... Maybe two examples. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 tells us, uh, it gives us this image of the word going out, like a person would go out, and, and then it, it doesn't come back void. And it uses all this heavy personified language. Proverbs 8, uh, 22 through 31, describes God's wisdom as like a person whom God, with this person, creates all things. So Proverbs eight twenty two says it this way. The Lord possessed, or quite literally, fathered me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. And then as you continue reading Proverbs 8, it continues discussing the Lord's delight in wisdom, and wisdom's delight in the Lord, and how they've basically contrived to create all that is, right? So personification is not, is not an abnormal thing, but John goes beyond personification. It's not just a literary device. He actually tells you, now this is just, it's not the word personified, it's the word is a person. He himself is a person. So Arius and his modern day disciples, the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, make this claim that Jesus, yeah, he's a person, but he's the first part of creation. So the way that they would see this, right, God created his word as a person, and then with his word created all things. Um, But that's not what John says. John doesn't just say that he's an eternal, he says, sorry, John says he's an eternal person, not the oldest person. And so look at this next uh, letter C, which is the climax of the mountain of verses 1 through 2. The word is God. John says it this way, the word was God. Well, this seemingly sinks any ship of a person who would say Jesus is not God, right? such as the Jehovah Witnesses who love to come into our uh, living rooms and tell us that. 
Um, and so, but yet, there's still an argument to be made. Jehovah Witnesses will calmly point out in your living room that there's no the in the Greek. It doesn't say the word was God, but it says the word was a God, right? Lowercase g. And so as a quick note, this is why I emphasize just to my children, and I teach history, but, um, not language arts, but I also emphasize to my history students that they should love language arts and that they should go into language arts with joy because they're learning how to six of them and he can't be confined into a box, but he quite literally confines himself to this library, these 66 books. And so reading, without being able to read, you can't read the word. And so even just at that basic level of language arts, it's eternally significant. So look at John 1. A lot hangs on this grammatical assertion of the Jehovah Witnesses. The simple lack of the the, there's no the, for them is the difference between the doctrine of the Trinity and stating that Jesus is merely a lowercase created God. So what do we do here? So I'll give you one, two quick notes. One is going to put you to sleep and maybe, and maybe uh, make you run away from language arts. And then the second one shouldn't put you to sleep. So the first one is this. There's a grammatical rule in Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament's written in. It's Caldwell's rule. All right, and he says this, definite predicate nouns, already lost, uh, which precede the verb usually lack the article or the the. A predicate nominative or noun which precedes the verb cannot be translated as an indefinite, right? Uh, as the absence of the article. You got that, right? Uh, so Caldwell's rule is basically saying um, in the actual Greek, it actually says God was the word, and there's no the before God. And so that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses work out. They say God was the word, and the word is kind of the, the subject of the sentence, and God is the object. So there's no the before God, as you can see. So they're saying, you should translate, the word was a God. But in Koine Greek, when this formation comes up, this God takes the definiteness of the subject, the word. So the the is supplied to both. Boring. Go to the next one. Not boring. Take them to John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas, right, he's told of the resurrection of Christ. And he says something along the lines of, unless I touch his hands and touch his side, I will not believe. And, you know, Jesus could have left him in his doubt. And Jesus decides to go to Thomas, and beyond just going to Thomas, he literally says to Thomas, and he didn't hear the words about Thomas. <laughs> he says to Thomas, because he knows everything, because he's God, he says to Thomas, come, touch the imprints in my hands, and touch my wound in my side, right? And Thomas then does that, and he proclaims this just climactic confession about Jesus in the book of John. This is almost literally right before the purpose statement of John. He says this, my Lord and my God. And it's so much more definite in the Greek. It quite literally is, you can't even make it more particular. It's, you are the Lord of me and the God of me. Definite articles included on all. And Jesus doesn't say, no, no, Thomas. I am the Lord of you and a God of you. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus embraces Thomas 
And he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And so Jesus says, true belief recognizes that Jesus is God. True belief. And so the difference between saying Jesus is a God and Jesus is the God is the difference between heaven and hell. True belief and false belief, according to John. So this picture of our God is radically changed in this mystery revealed in the person of Christ. God is not one person, but he's three, although in our text we only see two of them at the time. And yet these three persons are all equally called God, but not in such a way as to say that there's more than one God. So we're not polytheists, we're not, there's many gods, we're people who believe there's only one God. And so here's another question we could ask, what is God doing before creation in the beginning? What is he doing all that time in the beginning? And the difference between the doctrine of the Trinity, our God, the God of the Bible, and any other doctrine is the difference between love and hate. You cannot love if you are a single solo God, one person. Because from all of eternity, you've only had yourself to love. You have no neighbors. So where does this notion of the law come from that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves? Uh, Michael Reeves says it this way, and I, I recommend, this is a very short book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity, and it's God is love because God is a trinity. That's what he says. That's his kind of thesis for the entire book. So what was God doing from all eternity? John actually tells us this in John 17 at the climax of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the very last three verses. And by the way, the context of this little paragraph in the prayer, Jesus is praying for Every single person who would believe in him through the witness of the disciples, which, by the way, includes every single person in this room who believes in Jesus. Jesus prays this prayer literally over you. And he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing? The Father was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Father. The Father and the Son were loving the Spirit, and the Spirit was loving them as well. For all of eternity, God is love because God is a trinity. And he continues, it gets even better. A righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Here's the good part for us that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. A.K.A. the love that was from all eternity between the Trinity is now extended out to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, and it fills us. We receive the very same eternal love that God has to offer himself. He offers it to us in Jesus. So, we now have half of John's Christology, of who Jesus is, with half of it. Jesus is fully God. The other half will be explored later on in this same prologue, this verses 1 through 18, when it says in verse 14, the word became flesh, meaning he's fully man. We'll, we'll explore that later, but for now, let's just be satisfied with this great truth that Jesus is God, and note that this God is the God who we've gathered today to worship.
So let's look at our second point of three. The word creates and sustains all that there is. So this eternal person who is also God also creates and sustains all that there is. So John continues writing in verse three. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So verses one through two, John clarified there were more persons involved in Genesis one. And now he's continuing to just kind of give the summary of all of Genesis one here uh, that all of creation happened through this word. So he continues this account and he attributes it to the word and he states the same thing positively in the word. Negatively, he says this, without him was not anything made that was made. And so John's statements here has a few things for us to consider. First, thematically. In verses 1 through 5, he's kicking off a theme that's going to go through the rest of the John. It's the new creation theme. Jesus created and sustains the original creation, and Jesus will create and sustain the new creation to come, the new heavens, the new earth, the glorified saints of God, the church, right? John is using this first unique point in salvation history, a.k.a. creation, to foreshadow and strongly allude to this new creation, which is like it, but not it. And it's the word is in both, right? And so thematically, we have that. But secondly, we have the most practical knowledge now from verses 1 through 3 that a person can possibly possess, the most practical knowledge, the knowledge of God as the Trinity creating all things and sustaining all things. You might be like, that's not practical. That sounds super high concept. Listen to this. When you walk outside upon solid ground, it is because the Father created the ground through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit and even now is upholding the ground as you walk on it. When you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which I will never eat because I don't like jelly, but when you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it is because the Father brought about everything necessary for the bread, the peanut butter, and the jelly. He sustains it and holds it even as you eat it. What this means is that without the knowledge of God as Trinity, you're walking on your ground, you're eating of your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you're doing anything with or upon creation lacks purpose and truth to it. You don't quite understand even what you're doing. Yeah, I'm walking on the ground. Now you're doing more than that. You're walking on the ground that God created and upholds. So because of this, you can't properly worship God. But when you have this knowledge, you can worship God in everything, every single thing that you do. Or as uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. This is the practical knowledge of God as Trinity. So that God is a Trinity and that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all, it touches just practically every sphere. So I'm going to run through a couple things that more than ground and peanut butter sandwiches. The public sphere, governments, neighborhoods, dare I say HOAs, they're all created, sustained, upheld by God, even when they're in rebellion against him. He's still the one At any moment, he could just be like, and they're gone completely. But he's the one behind them. So this truth should cause us to want to reveal God's glory when we can in the public sphere, when we can in the government, when we can 
in our neighborhoods and things like that. It has implications for diversity and unity, which have become kind of buzzwords in the modern American context, but it has a lot of implications for diversity and unity. For At one level, unbelievers and believers alike have all been created by God, and so we share that in common. We're all in his image, and that is very practical for believers because it tells us how we ought to act toward one another and how we ought to think toward one another. But on another, even more important level, in the new creation, believers, sisters, and brothers are brought together or made one through this very same word, that we are actually family. And it's more, I say it's even more because it's eternal. It's an eternal family. Um, So the word sustains the old creation, and it invites us to believe in him to be ushered into the new creation. So he's the source of um, basically unity. So the way I write it is this, inclusivity and tolerance, which are, I would say, the two pillars that the majority of American culture tries to build unity upon, inclusiveness, tolerance. These are not foundations to build true unity. These are sinking sand like all the others. There's actually only one true foundation that can possibly produce real unity in the midst of difference, and that's building upon Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. So it has implications, more implications for your work, has a lot of implications for your work. All the goods we produce, all the work we do is ultimately sustained and upheld by Jesus. We should work as unto him. He sustains you as you work the job you love or the job you hate or somewhere in between, depending on the day. He's there with you, giving you strength to breathe and to stand and to work. He's there holding your desk together, the one that you sit at, or if you have one of the standing desks, he's there too. He's there with you as you grade and you grade and you grade, if you're a teacher. Uh, He's there with you as you sweat nearly to death in the warehouse that you work at, whatever it is, right? He is always there with you. He's there with you when you uh, teach your children at home and they literally beat you down by the end of the day. He's, he's also there. <laughs> uh, and so what this means is very important. God works. And so when we work, we reflect something about God. This gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. Like when you say, oh, but I'm not really accomplishing anything for the glory of God when I go work at the bank. You are. You are. Because God works. And so working is good. Uh, this also, more implications. One more. For individuals, us as individual believers, this gives ground to Christians for us to be able to worship God in the mundane and in the ordinary of everyday life because he's there, and he's doubly there. He's there as creator, and he's there as Christ inside of you. So we can worship him in the everyday tasks of life. So the word is eternal. The word is a person. The word is God, and this very same word creates and sustains all that there is. So let's look at our last point. Third, the word is triumphant over the darkness. The word is triumphant. This is verses 4 through 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, D.A. Carson calls this verse a masterpiece of ambiguity. And I've been longing for, like, when I say something super unclear, for, like, my wife or someone just to go up and say, Oh, thank you, beloved, for that masterpiece of ambiguity that you've given me. That doesn't always happen. But John is actually being intentionally ambiguous, ambiguous, something like that. 
But seriously, he intends it, right? So the ambiguity is to, the purpose of it is to blur the lines between the creation theme and the new creation theme. And so now we're starting to ask, what's he talking about? A minute ago, it was just Genesis 1. It's still following the pattern of Genesis 1, because now all of a sudden we have light and we have darkness, and that's first day of creation. Is he just, is he just following that pattern? Or is he talking about something a little more significant, like the light of salvation going into the darkness of sinfulness and calling people out of darkness and conquering the darkness, right? And John's intentionally blurring those things together so that we think of both at the same time. We also have a bunch of John-like themes in these verses, things that are going to show up over and over and over again uh, multiple times throughout John. So the book, sorry, not the book, the word life shows up about 39 times in the Gospel of John, always referring to one or the other, eternal life offered to people who believe in Jesus or the life that God himself has in himself, which is the same thing, right? The eternal life. So I'll give you the examples. John 3.16, we know this one. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's the example of salvation. Or John 5.26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So we got life. The word light, look at the word light. It also is used approximately 15 times in the gospel of life, shining out into the world, beckoning people to come be reconciled to God. So light is this contrast to sin. It's shining into sinfulness, and it's calling people out of sinfulness, right? John eight twelve says it this way, and then I'll give another one. John 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John twelve forty six also uses light. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So our next theme, dark and darkness. Also throughout John, um, in multiple ways. Sometimes it shows up as darkness. Sometimes it shows up as night. Um, but it's used at least seven times when you start adding night in it, it's more times. But sometimes, this word usually, well actually, sorry, this word always symbolizes evil and sinfulness. The, the world under siege by Satan, sin, and death, right? So darkness and dark, and dark are always used that way. And sometimes it serves double duty. So they'll actually use the word night, and it'll mean quite literally, it's dark outside. But also, symbolically, there's sinfulness, there's there's someone under the oppression of Satan. And so John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And it means quite literally, he probably went to Jesus when it was dark outside because he didn't want to be seen by others, but it also serves double duty. Nicodemus was oppressed and conquered and enslaved in darkness when he came to Christ, who is the light. So in this kind of immediate context of verses 7 uh, through nine, light is used five different times, and I'm not going to take too much here. It's used five different times, and it's concerning Jesus being the salvific light coming into the world. And so that's that's why John's being ambiguous. Uh, I'm saying it wrong. Ambiguity, ambiguous. Uh, John's being confusing right there because he wants you to see he's talking about creation, but he's also talking about salvation, and those two things are happening at the same time. All right, so let's keep going. 
This word, overcome, the darkness has not overcome it. This word, overcome, can also mean understood. The darkness did not understand it, the it being Jesus. Um, But John likely means overcome here because he only uses it one other time. In John 12, he says this, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And so clearly in this context, it's darkness is going to overtake you. It's going to overcome you. So that's likely what John means here as well. So what does our text promise from this phrase, the darkness has not overcome it? It promises us that Jesus is the invincible light and he will not be conquered by darkness, but rather he will himself will defeat darkness. The word is eternal. He's a person. He's God. He's creator and sustainer of all. And he finally will triumph over darkness. A.K.A. Genesis 3. Our sin. Satan, sin, and our death. So in conclusion, there's a couple of applications that we can also make from particularly 4 through 5, but also the, the entire text. Um, one, to the local church. Um, second, to the individual Christian. And third, to unbelievers. So these, and you might be like, well, what if everyone believes? Again, knowing the plight of unbelievers is important for believers because it's one of the th- reasons why we should go out and share the gospel. So first, to the church. As a church, we should have a humble confidence in Jesus. He will conquer the dark, and we will ultimately share in his triumph if we just cling to him, if we cling to him. We here as a church, we are the church in tribulation. There's false teaching and sinfulness within, right? And then there's persecution outside going toward the church, right? Some places more than others. Um, Think about the Afghani pastors and Christians, right? Think about places where, um, think about places where there's persecution and Christians are, are being killed for their faith. Think about places where you're kicked out of the country, Uh, for doing God's work. So we should pray for our brothers and our sisters. Because even though darkness looks like it's going to triumph, it won't, right? So the individual Christian, the individual Christian, Jesus will triumph in our lives. The darknesses that we walk through, the things that you individual fill in your name, the things that plague you, the sin that clings to you, the, the persecution that comes your way, the false teaching that you might fall into, whatever it is, Jesus will conquer your darkness as long as you cling to him in faith. And then finally, to the unbeliever, if you do not trust Christ, the Bible, and particularly the Gospel of John, teaches you three things just from these two verses, four through five. You are actively walking in darkness and are rejecting the God who created all. But second, in spite of this, God offers you light in Jesus. In spite of this, God is even now offering light in Jesus. And then thirdly, darkness will be overcome. And if you are not found in Christ during that day, you will be overcome as well. These are the three truths that we can get from verses 4 through 5. 
So if you're sitting here now and you're not in Christ, or you're sitting here now and you are in Christ, um, think through who Jesus is, cry out to him for salvation, cling to him with faith, think about unbelievers, think about your family members, think about your friends, think about your co-workers, think about your neighbors, think about maybe the stranger that you bump into at the grocery store. Think about their plight and know that Christ offers them light. And so then the question becomes, are you offering them Christ? Christ offers them light. Are you offering them Christ? So let's end with this, the beginning, the beginning of the fulfillment of this great promise that darkness did not overcome it. Um, So after taking sin upon himself and suffering God's wrath on the cross of Christ, he's buried, and in John chapter 20, verse 1, we get the resurrection. It says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Story continues, she runs and tells the brothers, Peter and John have a foot race. John destroys Peter but doesn't go into the tomb. Peter runs through the tomb and then sees that Jesus is not there, and then they go away dismayed. They don't know what's going on. And Mary actually stays there. Uh, Mary remains there, and she's weeping, and then she sees this guy who she mistakes for a gardener in John 20, verse 15, because the tomb was described as being in a garden, John 19, 41. And don't let that imagery pass over you. We're back at the Garden of Eden, but this time we're at the new creation. We're at the new Garden of Eden with the new Adam. And Jesus reveals himself. He doesn't just go past her as this gardener unrecognized, but he reveals himself to Mary Magdalene, and he tells her uh, these comforting words, and then he tells her to go back to the brothers and deliver a message, a message that is for all the church, It's for you if you're sitting here. If you're believing in Jesus, this is the message he tells Mary to deliver. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. And so she goes back. And so, brothers, overcome it. Or another way of saying is, the darkness has not overcome him. The darkness has not overcome the word. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you. We're unworthy. There's nothing in ourselves that uh, merit salvation. And the fact that you are a God who seeks your glory in a way uh, that includes us into eternal life is just beyond uh, comprehension. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for our sins. Thank you that when he died and darkness was all around him and he resurrected, in the middle of the night, in the morning, um, he walked right out of the grave. Light walked out of the grave. Darkness has not overcome him. I pray that that would be something that would feed us throughout this week, uh, that we would have a humble confidence in you, God, and your promises to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.